This is season motherfucking two. Welcome to another episode of the Uncommon Commander Podcast, where myself and other guests talk about our favorite uncommon legendary creatures to run as our commanders. Today, I have the mono-white guy himself, Charles. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. Uh, how are you, Cole? I'm doing good. Uh, thank you for coming on. I, I was looking really forward to this, um, not only just because of, of who you are and, and not just your brand. Like I think you're very well-spoken, and I think that leads to fantastic conversation uh but also because you run a mono white norika yamazaki the poet deck um and i really want to get into your mind about some of the some of the nuances like we've already discussed before the uh, the recording and just kind of some of the other nuances of of, of what you put together here um but yeah so we've i, I have talked about norika before as a rule zero pair uh, with Heiko Yamazaki, but uh, I, I want to. What's your take on the mono white spin of things? Of Norica? Yes, of of, of Norica specifically. Oh, so um, where 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 to begin? I mean, like, uh, would you like me to say about like what I think of her as a magic card as? Uh, magic as card character. as a character as a written character as as a poet you know like all, all of it all of it's interesting okay yeah so for those of you who don't know the lore of norka and haiko they're cousins uh, though i just call them the yamazaki sisters i don't know it just rolls off the tongue more easily than yamazaki cousins um but uh norka i believe lived the more i guess privileged life than than haiko but both of them have like the people's best interest at a heart. They just kind of go about it in different ways. Whereas Heiko believes that we're past the point of diplomacy and action needs to be taken. And she takes a more proactive role in, you know, uh, being on the ground, like where the people are, are suffering and, and, and helping them during an era where in, for those of you who don't know, like one of the big conflicts of the Asari uprising is that there's actually like a food shortage in Kamigawa and the um, uh, people are dying of starvation. And, you know, Heiko is very compassionate, cares about these people uh, and, and wants to help them out. And some of the samurai have defected because they, they feel like, you know, uh, it's like why serve an emperor who's not even around right like does does the emperor even care and uh you know th this all goes into the fact that uh the wandering emperor the wanderer who's the emperor of kamigawa um has like this affliction where uh, her planeswalker spark she can't control it and is constantly planeswalking away and obviously this is a very this is a very big detail that that's difficult to digest in for the masses of Kamigawa, and so nobody knows what's going on, and they just think that the Emperor's apathetic. Meanwhile, Norika Yamazaki um, is doing the best she can because from her perspective, from the inside, working with the Kamigawa Empire, uh, you know, she, she sees things in a different perspective and knows that, you know, people care. It's just that they can't do much because of bureaucracy and... 
Um, yeah, it's it's a very interesting you know dynamic between the two Yamazaki cousins. Uh, and if you guys read the story between the two, you'll find that, you know, they, they, they actually have a lot in common, uh, regardless of how each other thinks of the other. And, um, and you, you'll see how they reconcile their differences and such, uh, but they do reconcile their differences. It's just a very tenuous one, um, uh, at best. Uh, but like, I don't know how Heiko says it. it's like, uh, uh, I don't see you as my enemy, but I can't see you as my friend, uh, or something along those lines. It's a, it's a very it's a very poetic way of saying it. As for the title of why Norika is known as um, the poet, it's more the fact that she is a woman of words and a skilled swordsman. So uh, that's usually a title that we use to describe warrior poets, uh, and and Norika's you know, choice of words are often the diplomatic type. She is one who is able to resolve conflicts before beginning them. Uh, whereas Heiko is, you know, a woman of action. Uh, and she's the one who um, solves conflicts through the use of conflicts. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that, that, that that's Norika as a character. Uh, as a magic card, uh, she is a 3-mana, three 3-2 three, Vigilance. Uh, mirroring Heiko's Four mana, uh, was it uh, three three trample? Is that correct? Uh, she's a three two. Uh, no, no, I'm talking about Heiko. Oh, Heiko. Uh, yes, so she's a three three for four mana with trample and then trample, does the yeah. artifact side of things. Yeah, yeah. So very similar stats. Uh, they're meant to, to clash with one another and, and, and each other. Uh, none of the other has the advantage over the other uh heiko can trample in to get damage norica can attack has vigilance and can also block uh because she has vigilance um so she's one cheaper than her cousin and there's there's uh, there, there's some technicalities about her as a magic card that's very very interesting um cole and i discussed this a little bit uh previously but norica being three mana uh you know allows her to come down rather quickly in the game if you're playing something that's more like high powered or such, you can cheat her out with a jewel lotus or like a mana crypt and uh, planes to get her out. Uh, there is a um, uh, a matter of efficiency that the three mana value comes with. Uh, she's recurrable through effects like Sabine's Reclamation and Sun Titan. Like the three mana actually is very, very relevant to what she is as a creature type. The two toughness is a bit of a disadvantage for her because there's a lot of like board wipes like infest, pyroclasm, etc. that tends to just hit the two toughness mark very easily. However, vigilance is is really relevant and her triggered abilities is also very relevant. Unlike Heiko's, which is not as unique in mono red because you have things like goblin welder uh goblin engineer the ready trash for treasure a lot of these red artifact recursion effects uh you know make heiko seem uh redundant or um uh in or, or ineffective compared to what red already has norica offers a very sweet spot uh in particular uh there aren't many that actually go for the rate that she does like white doesn't have its own goblin welder or goblin engineer at one mana it doesn't have like a recurring activated ability from a planeswalker like Doretti. uh and so uh and the closest things that you have tend to be very expensive like sun titan or uh silent sentinel which is a seven mana uh four six 
Vigilance, uh, I believe, and flying. Uh, or it's just, just, flying. just it's just flying. Just, yeah. just, just flying. Yeah. Right. So it has just flying, and uh, but it returns the enchantment to play, unlike Norica. So Norica actually hits a very very sweet spot in white with her triggered ability, uh, and so she does something relevant, something interesting. Now, um, do you do want to hear like my my opinion or take about? her in any particular fashion call or no no please have you have the floor this is the whole point <laughs> okay so so from like i guess i like the card i think it's very very interesting i think it's really really cool but don't take what i mean as in i like the card as me thinking that's competitively viable i think that there is a lot of difficulties with this card if you're trying to play it competitively but i'm not trying to play it competitively and i think that there's a lot to unpack here uh, in in talking about Norca when I say that I like her because I think that oftentimes when people that say that they like something they often think that it's very powerful or very competitive uh, for a lot of things uh, that go against Norca from a competitive standpoint uh, this is an effect that only happens when you're attacking which means and Norca not having haste means that you have to pass up a whole turn cycle before you're ever able to use her ability the same actually goes with Heiko but Heiko being in red allows you access to haste, which is something that white naturally doesn't have. And the haste enablers that red, uh, that, that white would have tend to be artifacts, and you don't have many ways to get it other than equipment tutors like Stoneforge Mystic, which is great. Um, but, you know, I, I think that there are other relevant things that you could be doing with Norca. It's just, like, giving her haste with uh, a, a Swiftfoot Boots, I don't think is, like, the best move, or Lightning Greaves specifically. It's not the best move ever because now she's untargetable. Uh, and... You have to jump through a lot of hoops, like move the equipment off, reattach, etc. And she also has to attack alone. Uh, Heiko does the same thing. Uh, and uh, both red and white have interesting ways of giving them evasion. Like uh, red has, you know, things that make, you know, its creatures unblockable. White has protection, which allows it to become unblockable because of protection's clauses. Um, but again... You're jumping through a lot of hoops. You're now spending cards and game actions to get a singular game action to go off. And and if your end goal is to get that singular game action to go off, you're better off just using cards that are just way more efficient at doing it. Like I said, like Sun Titan, Silent Sentinel, Goblin Welder, which has you all go through less hoops and they reward you more for the amount of mana that you see yeah. in game. Like a six mana six six is just absolutely like, incredible. Like, with it, the the bar is pretty high. I mean, I'm I'm an absolute fan of Sun Titan. I jam that into every deck I conceivably can. But again, it's it's hard to beat something that as efficient and as as spec as Sun Titan is, and it enters and when it, like when it enters and when it attacks, it, and it's on a viable body that most of the time you're not worried about it succumbing to like outside of removal in combat. You're usually not worried about it blinking out. Yeah. So. At a competitive level, you know, you run into other problems. Like, uh, as it stands right now, Sun Titan, I don't think, is very trending in uh, competitive circles. Mm -hmm. Even in stacks decks. Mostly it's because they have Savine's Reclamation. Which and, is way uh, more efficient. Yeah, it's, it's way more efficient. It's mostly just the fact that, like, a 6-6 six, six body is still very powerful. Don't get me wrong. I mean, people play Saracendant. But the large difference between Sun Titan and Saracendant is that one is 6 mana, one is 1 mana. And so one takes a more efficient use of your mana base. 
Uh, and it would be great if Sabine's Wreck did come with a 6-6 six, six body. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. It's just more the fact that like when people play Sun Titan, the reason why they play it is the recursion ability. Its combat utility is also very important. And it's nice that it's all packaged into one thing. It's just that um, oftentimes the immediacy of... I need to recur this like three drop or less from my graveyard uh, happens at an earlier turn than you can afford to play Sun Titan. And in fact, sometimes, you know, recurring that three drop is the reason why, like, is the reason why, uh, or recurring that three drop is the reason why uh, you need to, or sorry, the reason why you, uh, you, you need to play the, that recur that three drop is because you want to play Sun Titan. Like you want to get back that Grim Monolith, that Mana Crypt, or or what or what have you, so that you can get to the mana that you need to finally cast that Sun Titan and start your engine and whatnot. But uh, and, and in terms of efficient engines, right there, people have constructed stronger engines now with a more efficient game plan overall than just uh, recurring Sun Titan in Mono White. It might still be very very good in Mono White. But uh, in the decks that I play as of late, uh, I've not been running Sun Titan as much anymore. I think like three years ago, I answered a question on Reddit where someone asked, you know, how many Teferi's Protection you have. And I told them, that's not the right question to ask. You should ask me how many Sun Titans I have in my decks. Because <laughs> um, I, I virtually ran them in, in all of them. But nowadays, I don't run in, in, in many of like my uh, more competitive decks. In my casual decks, though, I think that this card is phenomenal. It's it's a knockout force. Uh, and, and this might be a really good segue to talk about casual versus competitive and how I design my decks with that type of forethought. Um, so with, with, with competitive decks, I, I think a lot about, you know, my opponent's game actions. What, what am I doing to my opponents? What are the common play patterns and lines, right? So as an example... Right, uh, one that 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 bring up is like you know if your opponent's you know dumps out a bunch of mana rocks and then plays like a Crom and goes to like a two card hand, you know the relevant game action to do here is to just remove Crom. You don't want to give your opponents the opportunity. No, to yeah, replenish. like I, I yeah. like as someone who I'm not a I'm not a competitive player. I when I uh, when I started playing Commander back in 2011, 2012 ish. Um, yeah. I was coming from standard and was kind of getting tired of trying to keep up and, and all my creations could not hold up in, in some standard environments. So I, I, I moved on to play casual, you know, casual commander. Um, but when I, you know, for, for the longest time, not being connected or not being knowledgeable or even aware of like CDH, I thought Krom was just a pretty neat creature because I'm like, oh, you just get card advantage over time and, you know, maybe some people feed it pretty well and maybe some people don't or or some people just outright kill it. And, like, that was pretty much all that I was aware of. But when I heard that Krom was, like, a beast, especially if everyone's trying to cast as many spells, like, people are casting as many spells as they possibly can even on someone else's turn and that just ends up leading to the one person just getting... I imagine quite a few cards in their hand by the time it gets back to them. Yes. Uh, so the, the the maximum case is that with uh, three opponents, um, you are uh, and say that all three opponents cast two spells on uh, on every turn uh, before it gets to your turn. So you basically go through, uh, say, uh, if you include your turn as well, right? Uh, you go through. Uh, 
four turns total of Chrom potential triggers, you would have 12 cards in your hand, right? That's the maximum case uh, by the time you get to your next turn. Oftentimes, that's not the actual case. Uh, and, you know, I, it, it can average somewhere between like three to four cards in hand. Uh, but that's still a lot, right? At that point, that's you casting Tidings with a 4-4 flying haste body. Um, very, very powerful stuff. Um, it, but again, this is very dependent on your opponent's game actions. Um, if you're not playing with great opponents and they're being very reckless, I mean, like I've seen a lot of players just feed a Rhystic Study and such like that. Um, and, and, and I've recently had uh, discourse about this, about... Because... Uh, Right now, some of the rhetoric going on at this time is about you know playing good magic cards versus playing bad magic cards, and and my um, uh, dissertation is on like it not being about the cards but being about the players. Like you know, Rhystic Studies power level is actually kind of dependent on whether or not you're playing against responsible magic players versus irresponsible magic players, right? It, whoever is being very greedy and feeds into a risk study is often like kind of throwing the game away from themselves, but it's also very dependent on who else is doing what. Like I talked about a scenario where someone plays a risk study and then the stacks player decides that it would, that it would be smart to play a Thalia heretic Cathar. Well, playing the Thalia heretic Cathar actually discourages a lot of players from paying the additional one for Rhystic Study now, because they have to pay the one for Thalia, and they don't have the extra mana remaining. Uh, they can either choose not to just cast their spell at all, or to cast uh, or to cast it and feed the Rhystic Study player. Uh, and those are not very good options for either of them, but they will choose the one that at least gives them a shot at winning the game. So they will play it and feed the Rhystic player, because that's better than just straight up losing, because not playing cards at all to them, uh, at least in their self-evaluation of, you know, their progress in the game is not playing this card is just absolutely losing. Whereas, you know, uh, playing it and feeding the Rhystic Study, you still have a chance of winning because you still have a development on your board. Yeah, that's something um, I've had this conversation with some people in the past, even for, like, casual games, like, regardless if it's, like, on pre-con level or, or wherever people sit at the i'm the type of player that tries to maximize i i do try like i like to try to maximize my turn i'm i very rarely play blue so i usually don't keep interaction up so my idea is even if i do encounter a board wipe if i at least try to progress my board state into the unknown then at least i'm attempting to move the game forward in some way whether that's my own plan or i uh, I force, like, I, I could try to force people to do things that maybe they wanted to hold up for later. Um, but some people are like, well, maybe the the better way to play would be to be less impulsive and hold hold resources back and and to not, like, just windmill, like, windmill slam your hand on the table and just be like, all right, and then go with no cards in hand, mana tapped and all that. Um but it's yeah. it's those scenarios where it's like if you do have to pay you have to pay your taxes mandatorily but through a, a thalia or you have the option uh, through like a rhystic study or uh, mystic sorry yeah rhystic study or mystic remora or something like that yeah you're you, you are forced to make that assessment assessment yeah yeah you 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 will end up doing what is required but not what is desired is what I say that's a pretty fitting that's a pretty fitting yeah. line yeah. Uh, th th that can just be on a shirt, you know. Just that's your merchandise right there. 
you know, Thalia versus Rissic, versus Rissic study. Pay what is required, but not what is desired. <laughs> All right. Well, you heard it here, folks. Go. I'm I'm selling that T-shirt right now. <laughs> right. But yeah, it's 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 interesting. Um, because I I know cards like Rissic study and like Smothering Tithe create. For most people, depending on the style of games they play, it, it, it it's uh, they find it that restriction to be annoying because they're like, well, if I do play the game normally, the way I want to play it, it's no longer on my terms, and the person who has those enchantments is now in a much more uh, progressed board state with a lot of value. But if I restrict myself, then, quote-unquote, I'm not really playing the game and I'm not enjoying myself, even though it's just a minor, like inconvenience. It's just a minor yeah. inconvenience. Like this is the and like you know, it's not a a, a stacks piece like Thalia or things that prevent like like Hushwing Griff or things that like prevent ETBs or prevent you from drawing cards or, um, mm -hmm. like, there are things that do actively prevent you from playing the game. These minor inconveniences are only just that. Yes. Yeah. It and, and they're just kind of so 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 and, and that's like the interesting thing is that um compet and this goes into like the whole thing about like competitive theory uh because if you're playing in a casual setting exactly sort of how you just phrased it right there i think that that's what the casual player will think about and what they should be thinking about uh whereas the competitive player is weird Competitive players don't really think about what's fun. <laughs> they think no, about no, like, that's what, not yeah, that's yeah, not the goal. Yeah. It is the yeah. all right. Well, let's see who they're, wins. They're, yeah, well, 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 their goal is, or it, it, it's more of an indirect goal. Is that by winning, I am having and fun. Right? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas the 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 definition of fun is more intangible to them because uh, and when we actually sit down and think about it like if you ever go into like game design discussions and stuff like what is fun is actually very hard to determine right like how does fun you know exist what is the the the, the concrete form of fun that can squeeze out of a four-player game where is this invisible funness that occurs right and then quote the spongebob song for fun right here uh <laughs> But, like, you know, casual players have an idea of what fun is. Like, I want to play magic. That's fun for me, right? But it all, but that statement itself, like, any, I, like I said, I study philosophy. My focus is on, like, ethics. Any moral theory, even, like, the naive ones, like utilitarianism, has, you know, problems with, with something so simple as I play magic. That well, should just be it's it, fun, it can right? never be purely on a binary zero one or a black and white side of things it's not us on and off yeah. switch it is so intangible and it's so unique and specific to each person that like it's just going to be a never-ending argument that we'll have to the heat death of the universe essentially yeah yeah so uh, well what i'm getting at with here is that when we look at um at, at, at for 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 the casual player play and i'm saying like you know i just want to play magic cards what could what could possibly go wrong right as long as i play my <laughs> everything, magic card everything could possibly go well, wrong <laughs> like, uh, well what i'm saying is that like well what if your magic card is you know playing contamination like oh i like playing contamination what what's wrong with me playing contamination you playing contamination means that i can't play anything right it's usually what people respond back to right and people don't really realize that or you know, oftentimes uh, I see uh, 
some players with their casual experience of mine ends up being a siloed experience of like uh because commander is a form of self-expression right your commander is an expression of yourself in some ways it's much like a role-playing game you choose your commander you're you're a special snowflake commander and here it is i play it right this is everything that is about me this is what i love about it what i love doing about it it's very much similar to like league of legends overwatch or any like moba game where people are like oh i main this in smash bros or whatever and and people will, will you know come up with you know zodiac signs of what does your favorite commanders say about you yada yada right and you take those buzzfeed quizzes right so uh and and that's that's like the culture or philosophy of commander that's what that's sort of like the vibe that i feel like we often want to give to people when they play commander and and that should be the enjoyable aspect about it at least for casual play and so uh but because of that people aren't necessarily cognizant or aware of you know what happens to the other three people at the table when they play their favorite commander deck like say i want to play super friends and then i play like um humility right so that i can protect my super friends you can still attack my planeswalkers they only just do one damage at a time now right and that's and that just might not and you might think that that's fine but then you find out that someone else is playing like yogmoth you know, Thran physician, and they want to do Yogma things. They and want to like, proliferate. Oh, oh, look at all these, and also look at all these suddenly very amazing targets just get negative one counters on, and they just explode. Congrats, my that is exactly my plan. Is that what? Yeah, that is? yeah. Well, 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 well. The thing is that Yogmoth ends up having no abilities, but if there are neg one counters oh, already on creatures. True. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, and that's sort of like my point is that the Yawgmoth player is like, well, I wanted to play a game. I had these nice looking one one counters that I handcrafted from, you know, uh, from like a Glowforge printer or something where I, you know, or, or like I, you know, I got these coins from, you know, Beetle and Grim that I wanted to use as neg one counters. But my Yawgmoth doesn't do anything anymore because you played your humility. I think I, the, another case in point, like I play, I I um I think it was just after Zendikar Rising came out and Yasharn uh, was available, and I didn't think of anything of it. I just put Yasharn as commander. I jammed the deck together, and I, I that night I, I played with my friends and um. And someone wanted to play with their treasures, right? Well, it was like I can't... So, someone wanted to play with their Psy, um uh, Master Thopterist or Thopterist, uh, and they can't sacrifice their artifacts. Yeah, to so Psy. he's just like. We because we, like I I don't think I adequately translated it or like or or said like you're not able to sacrifice things and like it just didn't register until we were in game and I'm like you can't do that and they're like wait what and then they read the card and it's like ooh yeah this is not this is not the it's game not. that I wanted to act like I, if I was more yeah. like and I wasn't paying attention either and it, you know I probably could have just swapped yeah. the deck out for that particular game but it's it creates those scenarios where if information isn't adequately received or processed or communicated like it causes these huge mismatches and everyone's like and now i can't do the thing aka my deck doesn't work at all and it's just made you feel bad well let me ask you have you ever played dungeons and dragons charles <laughs> you you are asking <laughs> the right person who had okay. yes let, let, I, let, I, me, yeah. let me ask you how many people have you played Dungeons and Dragons with that you would feel comfortable with them as the DM in your campaign or one shot? Um, and if the answer isn't everyone, 
Okay. Right? Yeah, well, that's, that's the, that is the thing. Yeah, yeah. If the answer isn't everyone, how how do you feel comfortable playing with any of them in a commander pod? Well, it's hilarious because that same group is also my commander pod that I've been with for like yeah. over ten years. Hilarious thing. We we do joke about it. That being said, um, one of our friends is he's not the fun police. Um, mm-hmm. He does play very interactive decks. He he's someone who plays a lot of tutors. He he because. He said uh, he he talked about it. it we, I did a whole group episode a few episodes ago, and he's like, "Well, my thing is, is I can put a deck together, but I can't do it as fast and put a lot of time in it, and I register it as weak. So I put in tutors to sort of shore up its perceived weaknesses, um, and then he sits down and plays with it, and it's just it ends up being very consistent." Um, but he was also uh, our GM uh, for a Pathfinder games every once in a while. Uh, and he also just happens to run for, for some family. And originally, his first thing that he did was he's like, okay, I want you to go through this thing and there's a bunch of traps. And I want you to trigger the traps. But he didn't say that. So we go through it and everyone makes their saves and makes their checks and they go through perfectly. And then he was like, well, hold on a second. I need to trigger the trap. And he randomly spawned in something to trigger the trap because they missed it. And it's like, you know, you didn't. Well, that kind of defeats the, the, the point. <laughs> but, of... And it's yeah. like, yes, you can fantastically design this really cool booby trap dungeon. But it doesn't change the fact that if everyone just happens to, like, make their checks, like, through probability, then, like, boo-hoo. But that was also, like, over five years ago. From this point, like, yeah. from now, I think he's definitely learned his lesson a lot yeah Yeah. as a d yeah i think that i mean like i I was similar honestly i feel like a lot of people who gm for the first time have to realize that improvisation is really important and planning is important your plans never come to fruition but the whole reason why you plan is that you're not actually planning for your plans to go right you're planning so that in case you have to improv you have material to improv with um is the thing and I, i think that's really difficult I think that, and the reason why I ask you this question is because Commander and Rule Zero is a lot like that. And I often find it that while Rule Zero is really great, it requires a level of of introspection, uh, Mm -hmm. self-reflection, and rules awareness uh, to be able to play it out right uh, so that you get the games that you do desire. And oftentimes you're going to run into snafus like these, but then you learn from it and move on. But uh, when you get into a pod with random strangers for the first time, and that is your one game for the night, you kind of have to, like, you know, have a higher success rate of getting it right than getting it wrong with those people uh, on a first impression basis as well. Uh, And so... And this and talking about like the Yashar interaction also lends to the aspect of like why stacks can be so powerful in competitive plays because at the competitive level people also forget about these things. Um and I think like this is the reason why stacks can be very powerful because in the right pilot with someone who knows the right rules interactions and such, um, like they can just get someone simply because they're just not experienced or aware enough of potential interactions that this card undercuts. Uh, and they just don't know it. Like, I had a person play Pattern of Rebirth on their Ranger Captain of Aeos, and then sacrifice their Ranger Captain of Aeos and attempted to tutor for, like, Protean Hulk and not realize that I have a Hushbringer in play. Because this whole entire time, they thought that Hushbringer stopped, you know, creatures with death triggers or something like that, but not, like, an effect like Pattern of Rebirth. And I was like, no, it does. That that That's what it does. Yeah. And and so, 
and, and so like there there are these kinds of nuances or like when someone you know plays urza and then you respond by casting hollow moonlight uh which is the the instant speed cantrip version of containment priests and then the urza player is trying to get out their their urza's construct and then you tell them that they can't, and they are like, there's no Torpor in play, why can't I get out my Construct? Because like, they, they, ca- they cast the spell, and it prevents it from entering, so it goes poof into non-existence. Yeah, and, and they're like, well, Containment Priest doesn't do that. And it's like, yeah, but this is sort of like Containment Priest, but not really like Containment Priest, because the, the exact wording on Hallow Moonlight doesn't preclude tokens. Uh, in fact, it just says, if any creature would enter the battlefield and it wasn't being cast... Exile instead, whereas Containment Priest excludes non-tokens, uh, or excludes tokens. So Najila can get her tokens out, Urza can get his tokens out, but Hallow Moonlight, through a Containment Priest, but Hallow Moonlight says no to all of that, actually, right? And and that's like basically reading the fine print. Obviously, people don't sign up to play Magic to be legal scholars uh, for oh, this kind of stuff. I mean, yeah. th- so I, 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 um, the database that has been made for CDH decks, I only very briefly inspected it because I was kind of curious to sort of what some averages were. I'm not a hard statistics guy, but I just wanted a bit of insight. Um, but I also, and I noticed that the overall pool of cards, I think, unless I haven't checked it recently, I think it's about like 2000 unique cards across the database, I think. Um, mm. but that the outside of like some really niche picks or like uh, things that are only specifically tailored to like specific matters or a specific deck strategy, they're all like fairly consistent cards that everyone encounters probably in pretty much most every cdh game but you go outside of that sphere and into probably like the just that average commander game where everyone can pretty much play feasibly whatever they wanted um there's a lot of unknown information if some people are not just playing like the staples that most people expect like oh i'm gonna play this kind of ramp spell i'm gonna play this kind of counter spell or this type of creature um it it can become quite confusing, not only from like weird, strange rules interactions between a card printed in 1993 and then a card printed in 2022, but also like, oh, I've like, I, I, because of the phrasing or because of even like Oracle text, like that is not, does not typically come up. People like misunderstand or misinterpret the thousands of cards that a bunch of people play and they end up playing like playing into it in a such a way they're like oh whoops wait i didn't mean to do that but it that card's been out for three turns and now you you accidentally like played yourself into a bad position and that's just magic in general like reading the card sometimes explains the card but when you have three cards that do affect like the one weird corner case situation that's when everything just goes off the walls and everyone's like all right how's this rules interaction work what what is going on here i constantly bug my judge friend i'm like how does this work he's like oh my god (laughs) what is this yeah i mean understanding the fundamentals um uh helps a lot i've been playing the game for almost 20 years Mm -hmm. so uh and and i don't think about things in terms of pattern memorization of oh i know what this card does oftentimes when someone shows me the card i often think about like the oracle wording of the text and then be like okay i I know how to work with this card and i know how to abuse this card in some kind of way like Mm -hmm. there was this one time where i borrowed uh my friend's kai card deck 
uh, and uh, managed to counter someone's uh, demonic consultation with a sudden shock on the stack. Um, uh, and the way that I did was that I had a spell caller in play that had their sudden shock, uh, that had their demonic consultation exiled, and then they played Thassa's Oracle and then tried to remove my spell caller from the stack. And uh, in response, uh, I cast Sudden Shock, which is the split-second red shock spell. Um, and uh, I put Sudden Shock on the stack, and then I paid for its cost. Uh, because if you read through the comprehensive rules about casting spells, you don't actually pay for the cost of a spell uh, until after you've you know put the spell already on the stack. And so, uh, and there's a period during the spell casting oh, process. Oh wait! Yeah. Oh okay. Wait a minute. Oh that. Okay. Wow. That yeah. suddenly explains, um, I can't remember the effect. I think it was in Battle Bond where, like, someone else could help pay for the cost of a spell. Yes. So, like, I yeah. think, so that actually makes way more sense. So you can present the card without paying any mana, like, without putting mana or paying it exactly and just saying, like, you probably have yeah. the mana to cast it in full if you need to, but you're like, would anyone like to contribute to this? And then you put mana into it. Yes, yes. Uh, so I, I recommend anyone listening to this podcast to actually read the steps to casting a spell. Oftentimes, like I used to do volunteer work in uh, DC and teach kids how to play magic. And the thing that I hear often a lot amongst children and adults and people who are just new to magic is in response. And uh, I don't think people actually understand what goes into the statement in response. Like, you have to go through a round of priority that's being passed mm -hmm. in active player, non-active player order. Um, and when you cast a spell, you're actually going through, like, nine distinct game actions that you're taking to casting a spell. There are nine steps to casting a spell. The first step is moving the spell from the card from your hand onto the stack, and it becomes a spell. And then you, uh, you know, declare several things about what you're doing, like what modes you're choosing on the spell. If it has multiple modes, like cryptic command or, 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 or any one of those, like, effects, like, or a spell with entwine, let's say. And then, you know, you, you declare how you're going to be uh, paying for it. Not with mana, per se, but, like, if it has an alternative casting cost. Like, say you cast Force of Will. Are you paying the five mana or using its alternative casting ability, right? Um, uh, if, or you if, cast, if you cast a kicker spell, are you going to be paying the kicker cost? Yes, exactly. You declare those things, right? And then you go through the next process, which I think is uh, selecting your targets, right? If it's, like, an effect like Fireball, how many targets are you choosing, right? Uh, and uh, how are you distributing the damage if you were going to do that? This is also really important because I think in the previous set that I mentioned, like when you declared uh, what what you're paying for, you also declare what the cost is. So say that there's an X in the top right corner yeah. of the card. Uh, you have X, to what's the mana value on the stack and how much you're intending yeah. to pay for it? Yeah. And then there's then after you go through that process, you then talk about uh, cost addition slash reductions. Like, is there a tax effect? Is there a cost reduction effect? Uh, et cetera, et cetera, right? Uh, and then I think after that, you uh, you can activate any mana abilities that you have. Uh, and this is the reason why a card like Lion's Eye Diamond says that you can only activate it at instant speed because during this time, you're still in the middle of casting a spell. Like, no one has priority or anything. It's just you just casting a spell. You're doing a very discreet game action, but now you're going to do additional game matches within that game action, which is activate mana abilities. 
You cannot activate Lion's Eye Diamond during, during this time. You would have had to float this mana at this time. And the reason why this is important is because if you could have activated Lion's Eye Diamond during this period, then what meant what it meant was that you would discard your hand. But the spell that you're casting is no longer in your hand. It's on the stack. It's on the stack. Which, oh my yes. god. Yeah. yeah. And, so, and so that's why they added that additional clause so that way you can't cheat with Lion's Eye Diamond that way. Um and so and so you can't activate Lion's Eye Diamond in this in this step. But any other mana abilities that you can activate that say that you that 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 they don't have this activate only as an instant clause on it, right? You can activate it through this process. And that includes cards like Milliken, right? And that's why uh, if you read that specific text, uh, they say activate any mana abilities that require you to move cards into different zones. And that's almost specifically calling out Milliken. Because if you were to activate any of these mana abilities out of order, you can cause some wolf snafu. Earlier, I gave a judge a headache by saying that I activated him, that, that I tried to cast a Panglacial Worm using Milliken, and the card that I milled off of Milliken was a Blightsteel Colossus. What happens and all that stuff. Um, but, you know, that, that, that's a separate story for another time. But then after you do that, right, uh, and you now have mana floating in your pool, the next step is that you can spend any of the mana floating in your pool to then pay for the cost. Note that you can have excess mana remaining and because during that process, you could do whatever you want, however, whatever abilities you want to do, you can do it. And, and for the most part, you could do most of them out of order. Um, there's a very interesting thing with Halo Fountain from New Compenna because activate abilities also work the same way as, uh, as casting spells for mm -hmm. the most part. Uh, so if you turn Halo Fountain into a creature, you can tap it because part of its activation causes that you tap it and you spend a white mana and you untap a creature right uh if halo fountain is a creature you can tap it as part of paying its activation cost and you also untap it as the creature that you're untapping as well uh as part of paying for its cost it's pretty weird <laughs> uh but if you do it in that ordered sequence yeah you could do you you're not really breaking any rules there so back to this whole sudden shock thing is that Kaikara can sacrifice spirits, and I sacrifice Spell Queller during this step to add one red to my mana pool uh, and then pay for its cost. And the thing is that as I'm doing this, this is all through one singular game action of quote unquote in response, right? And so the trigger for Spell Queller actually doesn't go on the stack until I finished paying, paying for the for cost, the of, cost of it. Which means it's not yeah. like, so, okay, just, just so I understand it, because like, I this is super weird, right? Like, so it's a split second card. So you still had to find a way to cast it so you sacrifice things before the split second activates? Or is it because Kaikar's ability is so, a mana so ability? Read, so, so if you read split second, the reminder text on split second says that uh, you can't cast spells or activate abilities while this is on the stack mm -hmm. unless they are mana abilities. Right. And so you're not breaking any rules here uh because you are putting this spell on the stack right and you're paying for your cost as you're casting it right uh and so at this point it is on the stack already you cannot cast any other spell while this card is on the stack this mm -hmm. is the only spell that you're doing and you're and you're in that process of casting it right uh the and the only things that you're activating are mana abilities they they include that clause there so that you can pay for a split second spells while they're on the stack um so again, uh, you sacrifice a spell queller, you pay for, you have the red mana floating, you use it to, 
to pay for Sudden Shock. And then Spellcrawler's triggers on the stack, and the card that Spellcrawler had exiled was Demonic Consultation. And the specific wording on Spellcrawler said that um, the owner of the exile card may cast it now, right? And the restriction, and there's a timing restriction on it. They have to cast it now. They can't choose to cast it at any point later in this turn. It is only on the resolution of Spellcrawler's triggered ability are they allowed to cast it. But because Sudden Shock is now on the stack uh, underneath that trigger, because the trigger ends up triggering over on top of it, mm -hmm. right? Because of how you sequence uh, the order. If you had floated the mana first, and then you play Sudden Shock, right, it wouldn't work. But because you put Sudden Shock on the stack, and then you perform the sacrifice while you're casting Sudden Shock, the timing is now that the trigger is on top over Sudden Shock. And so now they can choose to cast Demon Consultation, but Sudden Shock's static ability which is split second is preventing you from doing it and so you never end up casting demon consultation and now it stays exiled forever what the fuck <laughs> <laughs> magic why <laughs> i would not I mean, be i'm i'm not envious of judges positions i mean this is this is actually a really simple one <laughs> believe it or not it's very clear cut um but it's not something that I think players know about. Oftentimes, you'll just think of split second as like, oh, you can't respond to it, you can't counter it. But you can also combo off of this. Like I like I've talked about this scenario before, in like a mono white combo deck where um, you know someone's trying to besage you, uh, my Ashnod's altar, and I know that they have to besage you, and they're waiting for the right moment for it. So I cast Angel's Grace on the stack, and then I hold priority and I sacrifice. Um, like my say lean and relic order to Ashnod's altar right uh and it had animate dead exiled underneath it and so animate dead comes back and it returns lean and relic order right angel's grace is still on the stack i'm going to choose to sacrifice lean and relic order again to Ashnod's altar because it's a mana ability i can still activate mana abilities underneath a split second spell so I'm just going to continue doing this and create infinite death triggers. And I have like an aristocrat in play, like a blood artist or whatever. And mm -hmm. I then just drain everyone for infinite life. Um, and they can't Boseju me because that's an activate ability that isn't a mana ability. And so it's even more potent than a silence effect now. And because the ETB is a triggered and not an activated ability, it can get around split seconds. Yeah. So, wow. Okay. Yeah. There's there's a lot more to magic than I think most players are aware of. Uh, and uh, stacks kind of introduces that because split second is a static ability. It's a rule setting ability, but it's a very ephemeral one that only exists while it's on the stack. Um, but you can even leverage that. It's the same thing, like I said, with like Yasharn. Um, and players often don't know the, how magic works. And so they don't understand these kinds of things. Uh, there's a really great YouTube channel that I've been talking about through a lot of podcast shows lately, and I encourage people to like check it out and listen to. It's called Judging for the Win. Um, I on on uh, my friend Josh's Discord, Mind Muscle Magic, which I moderate, and I have a channel there called Building Steam with a Grain of Salt, where uh, I post videos and you know questions for judges because uh, we have judges there uh, to answer some of these and talk about sort of like strange interactions that can prove useful for for players to use one day uh for example you know force of will was part of a cycle of spells mm -hmm. um and the green one bounty of the hunt uh you know like if you look it up like go to scryfall look it up 
the magic online printing of the card does not do what the oracle text on the card actually says. The card has like multiple different variations of different texts, but the oracle text for the card is distribute three plus one plus one counters uh, to any number of target creatures. At the beginning of the cleanup step, remove those counters, right? And so what that means is that it puts a delayed trigger on the cleanup step, not the end step. And so what ends up happening is that uh, on the cleanup step, damage is removed, right? And the reason why they want to do that is because in case it, because you don't want to accidentally just kill a creature, right? Say that mm -hmm. you have a 1-1 one, one that ends up blocking a 2-2 two, two, and you um, cast Bounty of the Hunt. And so it now becomes a 4-4. Four, four. You don't want to ha move to end step and damage hasn't been removed yet. And the creature just dies, it just dies on the spot. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So man. you so you go to cleanup step. Damage is removed, and this trigger is now on the stack. But because this trigger is now on the stack, priority is now instated in cleanup, which means that you can now respond uh, during cleanup step. What also gets removed during cleanup are until end of turn effects. So if your opponent silences you during your turn, you can respond by pitching a green card and giving a creature like Silvala, uh, Heart of the Wilds. Um, uh plus three plus three and then move to cleanup and once so, and now you're in cleanup silence's effect is now removed and now there's a trigger to remove the plus one plus one counters off of savala but you can respond by cracking emergence zone and then start flashing in creatures and drawing cards off of savala and comboing off during the cleanup step uh this is very similar to like the get rock combo for like competitive decks right so Again, there's a lot of these types of weird interactions that players just aren't aware of. They don't really know what is bundled in the end step. Like, players don't know what happens during the combat step uh, as well. Like, some players think that the combat step is over as soon as damage is done. It's like, no, there's still, the, there's still this period where you still, uh, like, you can cast certain spells that require to be still in combat or... There, yes, yeah, there's yeah. still the there's still the room of, like, okay... Your thing dealt damage. I will now exile it. Like I will float mana and exile your. Th or like there's a, yeah there's like there's yeah. certain situations where it's like oh well mana's still here, and we're still not in the second main phase. So I'm gonna get rid of your thing now after you did the damage. Yes, and there are things like your creature is still considered attacking even though it already attacked, but we're still in combat and it's, uh, and it's an attack. Rec you can activate reconnaissance post combat. Damage. Yes, yes. Post combat damage, but not on second main phase. Not on yeah. second main phase. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. There, there, there's a lot of these things again <laughs> that, like, when you get to the nitty gritty, right? And again, nobody plays magic to be a legal scholar or rules lawyer. Uh, but I think like this is a problem with the way that cards are designed, with the way that white cards work, the way that they work. They're very, very powerful. Um, if in, if played in the right hands. White is the color of rules and law. And uh, unfortunately, you kind of, like for some of these white cards, you do have to kind of be a lawyer to play with these cards. I happen to just have a philosophy degree. Uh, so I guess that works out for me. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we, we got really sidetracked here, but I think this is a really like uh, fruitful or facilitating conversation to actually talk about Norica now. So to go back into it. Yeah. 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 
So, so, so knowing about this, there's a lot that, that goes on. Uh, I don't think Norca is very competitive. I can very much be wrong. I think like there, I there's mean, a lot of things. I, I think yeah. th this is the thing. Um, cause I, I know on, on Twitter, especially the conversation of like, what is, what is CDH? What is competitively viable? How should you get into it? Like, do you take a deck that are deck that already exists? Do you try to analyze things and like make your own deck? Like, I was shocked uh, of uh, about actually this episode is going to be forty nine, so twenty four episodes back or so. Um, I had Jake Fitzsimons on to talk about Cole the Forge Master, and that that it was just the the thing was like, okay, tell tell me about your CDH deck. I was. The, when I started this podcast, I was under the assumption that no creature under a certain rarity with maybe certain niche ones like could ever be considered competitively viable. And yet, uh, Jake's story and even some of his friends who, who commented about it, um, they turns out Cole the Forge Master with like the right setup is actually very uh, combo like competitively viable even if it's like maybe in a certain meta but like goes to show that like regardless of the the printing or the rarity or whatnot like even certain creatures can have some kind of viability is norica like viable i'm not sure but who knows we could be proven wrong yes the the likely answer at the moment is just no no um, yeah and 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 I don't want to be absolute about it. Mm -hmm. Like the way that I often tell people about whether or not their commander is viable or not is not to just say your commander is not viable. It's more like, well, your commander has these issues that's going to run up against, and if you're going to make it viable, you have to answer these issues, right? Uh, and and until those issues are going to be answered, then it is just very like you know uh then, then i'm not very confident that it can succeed very well uh is 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 the end answer of it it's not a straight up like oh this will never work it's just more of like you know i would wish that it could work but you have to deal with these things you, first. you have I, to jump I, through I, hoops to make it work yeah if i was your opponent i would exploit these things against you and you need to think about that right uh, that's just the the realistic take of it, right? Because as a competitive player, I'm not going to really show any mercy to you about like whatever you do with it. Now, this being said, let's pivot this over to like casual play, and mm -hmm. I, this is this is like, but but understanding this competitive aspect is actually really important because what I'm about to talk about with casual play is because going back to the, the whole D and D analogy, right? Uh, this is really important because uh, casual players will set up additional house rules about things. I've been in casual pods before where people are like, I don't want anyone to combo off before turn five. Turn five, right? yeah, yeah. Yeah, and this is like really important to me because now I know that I have five turns to build up a board state. People can still interact with me. That's totally fine. But I know that there are certain things that I can do to guarantee that, you know, things will happen. Like, for example, if I play in a like Sylvan Library, like, oftentimes we talk about this in, in competitive play about, like, a card like Sylvan Library. Like, if you play Sylvan Library uh, and you're a combo deck, right, what it tells other players or signals to other players is that I just spent two mana, uh, and if I don't use Sylvan Library this turn, then I've wasted two mana, right? Uh, sorry, if I don't use Sylvan Library this game, then I've wasted that two mana. Right. And what I mean by that is that if I intend to combo off this turn, why the hell did I spend two mana to play Sylvan Library? And not, not and not pay to... the eight to dig deeper. Yeah. Or, well, specifically, if I'm going to combo off the same turn that I played Sylvan Library, why did I play Sylvan Library? Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Like, 
why waste the resources if it's not going to contribute to me winning? Yes, because because there isn't going to be another turn after this. And Sylvan Library triggers on your next upkeep, right? Yeah. So so you just effectively wasted two mana that could have gone into a counter spell to defend your 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 combo line, right? Uh, so oftentimes Sylvan Library is a signaling to the other players at the table. Hey, I'm not going to win this turn. I'm going to pass now, <laughs> right? Uh, and so, and, and, and that's, and that's, and that's a very interesting caveat because some players when trying to optimize their combo list to like, be like, oh, I could try to win on turn one or whatever. Right. And then Sylvan library is a card that sometimes goes up to the chopping block for consideration of like, well, I don't know if I actually want to play Sylvan library. Right. It's a very powerful card. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but you need to have like the right frame of mind to know how and when to use it. This is the thing that I often emphasize to players. Like again, with that rhetoric of good magic cards versus bad magic cards, and then good magic players versus not so good magic players. Um, because knowing how a card works, what context in which it's very effective and not very effective often matters. Like I said earlier, uh, to you, uh, I'm not sure if we recorded it when I was saying this about like the risk study versus yeah yeah like so the risk study so versus, versus smothering tide yeah yeah or or, or risk or, study in Thalia Thalia yes yeah yeah where like Thalia is generally pretty good for most Dax decks but if you play in front of a risk study you might be creating a very toxic play pattern here now where players are kind of forced to feed the risk study player because they can't because they're they're because they're now forced to play to pay for the Thalia tax which would have gone to paying for the Ristic tax. But one is optional, one is not optional. And they only have one extra mana to spend on, you know? Um, and so that specific context actually makes it so that Thalia doesn't seem like a really good card here, right? Uh, and so, you know, these are things that, like, not every player is ever going to think about. Now, when we talk about casual play... Generally, I don't expect people to play Thalia in casual play. Like, uh, and, and sort of what I'm looking at here uh, uh, in casual play are, you know, sort of the tenets of what those casual plays are. I think about this as if I was a DM, DMing a dungeon, right? I want, and, and, and I've been watching, you know, Matt Colville? Yes, yeah, I love his stuff. Yeah. Yeah, so I've been watching his videos and all this stuff, and uh, I really subscribe to his type of philosophy of like the about as a DM, your responsibility is to create a very enriching game experience for your players, right? Um, but as a, and as a Magic player in a four-player pod, right, I contribute to that game experience. Uh, I want my 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 playgroup to feel like that they had a good game. But at the same time, I'm also thinking about myself. I'm looking out after myself. What do I want to do, right? And for me, like there are certain things that I enjoy doing, and so it's it's a little bit of a balancing act. There aren't going, not not every player is going to buy into what you like doing, right? Uh, and so, but 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 making sure that you're not being obtrusive to others is also kind of important. And so, stack pieces are often out the 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 table for my kinds of game plans, uh, or at least like really heavy ones, like no winter orbs, no mass land destructions. I'm not really into that particular type of narrative. Uh, especially for casual play. And I think that, like, oftentimes people are like, well, white is weaker without it. It really falls behind. Once again, I don't necessarily think that that's true. But then, and this goes back into what we were talking about with discrete game actions. Like, playing a Sun and Shock so efficiently well because you know how to use it uh, makes the card way more powerful than you th think it originally ever was. 
right? And so when we talk about like this five turn buyout, right? There's a lot that you can capitalize on, particularly incremental advantage. You can still play removal, you can still play interaction, but you can now play cards. And, and so this conversation about Sylvan Library also now becomes important because Sylvan Library, because oftentimes in a competitive setting, when you play a Sylvan Library, you just lose to an opponent who just decide, okay, well, you didn't win on your turn. I'm going to win on my you turn. Get a win on your turn, right? yeah, exactly. Yeah. But if you know that there's a five-turn buyout, you know that you get five turns of triggers off of Sylvan Library now, right? And, uh, and, and you have the flexibility of being like, well, how how viable is four life of card within those, you know, five turns or so? Like, are you willing to pay eight mana per turn cycle even though you only have 40 life? You have the flexibility of making that play without it having, hopefully, not like an immediate... Uh, an immediate uh, assault from the opponents who are now attacking you because well, you have a Sylvan library yeah, out? Yeah, like, the way I yeah. look at it, I think someone pointed this out on a tweet uh, within the last couple of weeks or so. The reason why they find, like, competitive commander, like, so unappealing is because the first few turns where you have the flexibility of knowing that you're not you're not going to get blown out like within like the first two or three turns and like some of the plays are not going to be considered like mistakes that like horribly impact your chances of winning it's there's sort of this lull period where yeah sure everyone's charging up and they're playing cards and they're doing this or that but like there's no immediate oh i'm dead i if i hit this button moment where you can like you can play the sylvan on turn two and then everyone's like well okay like that could be pretty crazy, and now you have the choice of, like, well, do you... You get to at least, like, what are my next three cards? Do I get to pay my... Do I get to pay the life? Is it a viable option right now? You know, you're... You can make those decisions without the immediate impact of, okay, I'm dead. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Sorry, were you saying that that's the appeal of... Like, that's... Like, like, like the, the appeal of casual... Well, I, I know casual is not exactly the best... Non-competitive. Non-competitive, sure. Yeah. That the the reason why people find the casual aspect so appealing is that they can play a Sylvan library and it, it you know, people can take it however they want, but it is not the 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 sign that they're not going to win. It's the sign that they're trying to progress their board state. They're trying to get card advantage to, to move the game along either in their favor or forward in some capacity. And it, you know, people don't look into it deeper than possibly than, oh boy, that guy played Sylvan Library, let's go get him. Like that, that's the, yeah. that's the worst case scenario. Yeah, I think that some players might react poorly to, oh, that person plays Sylvan Library, let's go get them. That person um, plays Rustic Study, let's yeah. go get him. Yeah, there, there, there's a lot of theory behind it. Like, for example, you know, some mulligans down to a four card hand, their opening play is turn one island, mana crit, Rustic Study right and people like panic you also have to realize that, that person mulligan to a four card hand they drew a card for their turn they play three cards out of their five card hand so they only have two cards left in their hand yeah like that is <laughs> and so and so it's all contextual you know, and, and like a case-by-case -case thing yeah and then so someone on their turn is like all right well i'm gonna play this forest we're gonna cast naturalize you can draw another card you go to a three card hand and i blow up your heuristic study and you know that person's tapped out. By the way, if they're going to cast a force of will to stop that, they go down. They, they to go a to yeah, like it's it's. <laughs> they they've it, done everything they could to try and keep themselves in this game, and they did a hail mary, and now they are so, literally at the mercy of the table. Yeah, 
And so, yeah, it, it's not very pretty for them. I mean, like, if the risk study stays long enough, right, and we say that we have this five-term buyout, yes, this then becomes a problem, right? But that context changes every turn cycle. Um, and players are not very good at evaluating these things. Uh, like I said, oftentimes players are very siloed into their own games, right? Like, like players will be like, like, this goes back to what I said at the beginning. I just want to play Magic cards. What could go wrong with that statement? Right. And, and, you know, here I am not talking about what I'm playing here. I am talking about what someone else played, right. Which then informs me what I play. And this is oftentimes, I think like the key to success in playing mono white. Um, I mean, white is a color that, that, that thinks about the big picture. It thinks about the group, the collective and not about itself, which is what, you know, black or red tends to think about from a flavor perspective. And then mechanically their cards are kind of represented this way. Like, each individual card is not powerful alone, but then when assembled as one cohesive unit, it's very, very powerful. I often talk about, like, the interaction that you get. You know, like, there's a card called Oath of Lieges. It was part of a cycle along with Oath of Druids, which is the most memorable and popular one. Mm -hmm. But Oath of Lieges is, like, at the beginning of each, of each player's upkeep, that player can target an opponent. Um, and if that opponent has more lands than them, they can search the library for a basic land and put it onto the battlefield, right? This card has very interesting synergies with, you know, the new cards like Deep Gnome Terramancer and Archivist of Ogma, so that whenever your opponent targets someone with more lands of them and they search a library for a basic, you get a planes and you gain one life and you draw a card. Uh, and because of this, if you have three opponents, you end up having more lands than any opponent, so they can oftentimes target you, which just gives you more lands again and more card draw. Uh, and so it like it's a very toxic fuel, and so they're often uh, obligated to not target you and not target anyone and not capitalize off of the leeches. But because they don't target you, you can still target them and get the lands anyway. And so it becomes a very asymmetrical effect. And anytime that they buy into oath of leeches, you buy into it as well, and with an even stronger uh, buyout. I feel like th uh, I've I've definitely had um, mono white border talk about this card before as well. Yes, yeah. Uh, Peter, I mean Peter loves a lot of these like really like cheap like monetarily cheap uh, white cards that people tend to underestimate. It's all about play patterns and gamer and game actions, mm -hmm. right? Like Simic cards are really powerful because on the face of the card that's printed on it, it's just incredible value. White cards are powerful because of what it causes other players to do. Uh, and so it's not very obvious printed on the card. An example of this that isn't a mono white card is like Brina, the demagogue. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's very powerful as and and her power level is is sort of like representative of that white aspect of it, of the fact that you don't notice how powerful those plus one plus one counters become until it's too late, you know. Uh, and, and that's, that, that's like a general philosophy of what white as a color tends to be about. It's like, oftentimes we were like, oh, like, you know, at first, you know, the, 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 the stack seemed fine. It didn't bother me, but then suddenly I'm just losing and I don't know when I started losing, you know? Um, I, I think, um, one of the things that I've been, cause I know white as a color, like it's very, like everyone has their appearance you recognize the strikes you're you're an ad, you're an advocate of playing white not just as a monocolor but just in general like you you recognize the strengths for what it is and not what it's not um 
And I found over time, especially with some of the cards that have been printed with the last few years, um, like, uh, oh shoot, Secret Rendezvous and Flump yeah, yeah. and, and a handful of these other cards where some people frown, uh, frown at them and, and, and opt not to play them because they're like, well, why would you give your opponents um, an option? And I look at it as, well, perhaps that's the thing that white needs more of uh, especially in Commander, is because it creates a unique dynamic of yourself and the table, where maybe you don't get, maybe you don't get an immediate benefit. Maybe it is parity, like with you and someone else, but it creates an additional level of interaction that's not just like mechanically viable, but like a social aspect as well. Where it's like, um, you know, maybe you can influence someone to be like, hey, if you attack my flump you and I can draw cards because the current situation you're in isn't exactly favorable in like a, a more casual, relaxed environment where someone's pulling ahead and you need to buddy up or it, it, it just creates a, an additional avenue of playing magic that white can really, I think in the future lean on to make it stand out and be really unique in a commander game. Um, that isn't just, I have to do things for myself, let's do things together, but now, because you're interacting with me, it, it just, I, I feel like it, it's just multi-layered, it, and White could really lean into it more to, cre to create, like, really interesting gameplay with people. Yes, yeah. Well, and that's sort of, like, what I lean on when I do casual play. Uh, in competitive play, I, I, I leverage White differently in terms of, uh, of giving my opponents bad game actions to take and or, or or stopping relevant game actions because I know how you know their decks work or how they're playing in certain cards and then you know putting a uh, a wrench in 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 the cog uh, I guess is that's that's the the idiom if I have it correct um uh and it's and so, you know, understanding that allows you to be a better stacks player, but also allows you to just build better casual white decks because you know how game matches work. Everything that you're doing is very deliberate now, right? Whereas I think that, like, you know, for some players, it's just very, like, a happy accident. Like, I built this deck, it's great, and it happens to do these cool things with you, right? Awesome. We have a really fun dynamic. Whereas I think, like, building white decks for casual play, you really kind of actually have to know what you're doing, Right, what kind of game experiences you're creating with your opponents, and and enjoying that, and that might be like part of the particular barrier of entry for people learning to play white. Uh, it's not that white has bad cards; it's just that like we, some people just aren't skilled enough at, at the game to play it. Um, and this isn't like a pretentious thing to mm -hmm. say uh, or an elitism thing. It's just more the fact that like you know uh, it's not obvious thing printed on the card. Like Brina was a card that was very difficult to gauge power level wise until you actually played through it and then you were like oh i kind of get it now you know i think uh, even even being on the receiving end a lot of these effects especially in the hands of very skilled players who know what they're doing and know how things work um you end up realizing like especially for a lot of cards that uh, you know i would say in general a lot of people like very undervalue or under assess because they they already have a particular style of play and so they take a look at a card and say well that doesn't appeal to me so it's probably not that good and yet in the hands of someone else it's suddenly like oh well you know you're used to this particular kind of sword but they're really good at that like sword player like you know whatever my analogy is but like yeah mm -hmm. cards are i think often in a vacuum 
of or under the perspective of like a certain person are often more often than not undervalued i'd say kind of like urbresque heretic praetor it's a right it's a red card but i think it's actually yeah. a lot better than people really generally think i love that card uh the new capenna Urbrask? yeah 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 that one is fantastic he, he's he's a lot of fun. He's phenomenal. I would if I was still playing mono red, I probably would build a mono red version of him because I think uh, he does some really interesting things, especially for like casual play. Even at the competitive level, I think he's very very powerful because I think that the incremental advantage that he creates for your opponents, like they end up getting bled dry by him. Well, and especially because like they have to they have to make the choice on that first like okay go to your turn. What's your first draw? Do you let that one go? Or, or is it very crucial to, like, what you need to do? And that choice can really make or break what they're doing. Yep. So, um... So, in regards to, like, the, the Norca thing now, uh, there's a... In design for for casual play, what I think about is sort of like my opponent's game actions. I I care a lot about like you know the 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 texture of the gameplay. I'm not trying to restrict my opponent's game actions. I'm letting them play magic, but I need to be very responsive. I need to also accrue value of my own to present a threat. I need to be engaged with my opponents. I and, and but I don't want to present like a particular hard lock. And so one of the things that I go into white is about this thing about inverse advantage. Inverse advantage is this concept where you change the rules of the game to benefit. To your advantage. Uh, oftentimes there's stacks pieces like rule of law, stony silence, rest in peace. These effects often change the rules of the game so that players aren't able to do things and it's not very fun. But there are other kinds of inverse advantage where you can change the rules and they are, you know, not game restrict game restrictive. Like uh, mana reflection, not a white card, you know, doubles everyone's man or doubles the players' mana, right? Mm -hmm. Group group hug effects like knowledge pool or chaos effects like possibility storm also change the rules of the game. They're often now util utilized as stacks pieces, but it's really important to know that like group hug, um, uh, chaos, and stacks are all kind of like siblings, or since we're talking about the Yamazaki cousins, cousins of each other, right? Uh, each one just changes the rules, but to a specific angle. One is looking to restrict game actions. One is looking, which is stacks. One is looking to invalidate game actions, which is chaos, which means that, you know, anything that you do doesn't really matter because the outcome is going to change anyway, mm -hmm. because there's a chaotic effect in play. Right. Uh, and then the other one's looking to um, exacerbate uh, game matches make them amplified which are group hug effects like anything that you do now is going to just do it just twice the amount <laughs> like heartbeat of spring or mana flare you know uh, or like you know howling mine those kinds of group hug effects um and so now when we apply this now to like a casual build the the norca deck that i built you know utilizes some of that aspect of i'm going to play cards that don't that don't restrict your game actions, but improve my game actions, right? Sagas tend to do this, where you play an effect and it gives you additional game actions over the course of your next turns. And because there's this five-turn buyout where I know I'm not going to get got in the early five turns, these sagas will come to completion, right? Uh, and I get additional game actions off of them. Uh, I play an Anthem effect, and now all my 1-1s are qualitatively better than your one ones because i have an effect that does that uh this is a thing that i call about white's quote-unquote ramp philosophy because oftentimes people are like well i can't you know uh play rampant white and get these really big creatures out i was like well why don't you just play one ones it's like what's the point of one ones it's like 
Well, you can play, you know, Glorious Anthem, Force of Virtue, Dictate of Heliod. Suddenly they're all five fives now, right? You always wanted that crater hoof. Not, not, not crater make, hoof. Make, uh, build, build your own crater hoof. Build your own. Uh, Rampaging Baylos. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's like, I need to get to six man to play Rampaging Baylos so then I could get four fours. Like, well, why don't you just start out with four fours to begin with? Get yourself three one one flyers from Anointed Procession, flash in Dite of Heliod, and then you have three 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 flyers. Just And then you flash in Force of Virtue. You flash in Celestial Crusader, which is split second in flash and gives all your white creatures plus one plus one. Right? Uh, play Angel Jubilation, and now you have six six flyers. Like, you know, and what do they do? Kill a 6-6? Six, six? Great. Here's a Castle Ardenvale. Make another 6-6. Six, six. I right? think, yeah, I, I I had this talk with Peter probably about a year ago now for my second episode, because Quende uh, Pride of Femref is one of my favorite mono-white decks. Um, mm-hmm. And you can have your army of one, two, and three mana first-strike creatures that, you know, maybe cap off at maybe one or two power, but by using effects like Quende to give them double strike or having those anthem effects like Marshall's Anthem or Honor of the Pure or whatever, and suddenly you have an army of three threes and four fours and five fives that have first strike or double strike or whatever ability you want. It's your build your own army, and you did it over time while maintaining a board state while other people were probably trying to set up to make like the equivalent of that. Yes. And so that's... um. That, 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 that's at the core of kind of what mono white is. It's a color that creates rules either to the detriment of your opponent or to benefit of yourself. In non-competitive play, you often create rules that make yourself, that, that, that is to the benefit of yourself. And the rules that, 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 that Norica plays with are less uh, orthodox than what we've seen in traditional mono white decks where you just play a Cathar's Crusade and then buff up your party. Um, in Norica, it's with sagas. You create these additional rules through sagas that give you things to do on your upkeep. I mean, not on your upkeep, on your main phase. Um, and Norica herself allows you to repeat those sagas. Uh, you play auras uh, that give Norica protection. So it sets rules onto Norica herself that says, oh, well, you can't do these things to Norica anymore because she has protection from creatures or she has protection from all colors. And things like that. You play a greater Oromancy so that your sagas can't be touched. Your Norica can't be touched because now your enchanted creatures have Shroud. And the list kind of goes on. And none of these things are stopping your opponents from doing things. But they are making you stronger, better. It, it's it, Flavor-wise, it's like Norica, the poet, is chanting over the verses of the sagas. Uh, I had this one game where I was playing... Uh, uh hallowed procession i think that's what's called is the enchantment from uh from innistrad uh where uh i think crimson vow where whenever you cast an enchantment spell oh, you ha- create hallowed, in- hallowed haunting hallowed haunting yes where you and, and if you have seven uh or more enchantments you uh they, they all get flying and vigilance right all your creatures get flying and vigilance, right? And someone's like, oh, you have seven enchantments. Like, yeah, I have seven verses. <laughs> and, and, and I like that kind of saying. It's the poet with seven verses uh, notched under her belt, right? And and each of them are is, is a separate saga. And it's like, let me tell you the story of this saga over and over again, right? Uh, and, and each spirit is like an embodiment of that saga being retold. I just love the flavor concept of it all put together. And... 
what I find interesting about game matching wise is that even if I have all this power and, and, and value at the table, right, in order for Norka to work, I have to attack with her alone. That means I can't just, you know, cast my enchantments and attack with my army at the same time. I have to decide whether or not this combat I'm playing for value or, or I'm playing to end the game. Right, and it forces you into this battle cruiser like pace. This is very nice, uh, actually, because as a player uh, who who you know might be more skilled, you might try to play more optimally, and it might you know throw your opponent off by doing that because you're taking game actions that they're not used to, and they feel like it's unfair. But here, there's almost like a fairness is in, that's enforced to you, like you're. I mean, she's a samurai. Like, you're a samurai, you have a specific code of honor that you're engaged with, and you have to attack alone. Which is, like, the whole point about, like, the exalted aspect of the samurai mechanic in Neon Dynasty, that the, that the designers of Wizards, I think, you know, you know, tip, tip my hat to them. Like, they did a really great job with that and sort of getting that kind of flavor concealed through. And it feels fun doing it, in my opinion. Like, I enjoy attacking with Norco alone. I enjoy... You know, making that executive decision like, oh, this is a turn where I want to progress in my board state versus this is a turn where I go in for the killing blow kind of thing. Yeah, I as someone who because I, I I managed to come in sort of at a right time um, that particular night you were playing on uh, the the RC stream. And um, because I someone who I, I know some people like some of my friends have talked about my a friend of mine even gifted me. Um, a, a foil altered version of Norca that I, th I definitely want to make a deck around. And I saw how you were setting things up and then I took a look at the list and it's just, there's, uh, there's, uh, there's like the, there's your flair to it, obviously. There's, um, the, like the choices of using all of these, uh, creature, creature sagas that can recur themselves is also just like, it's just overall like a very refreshing deck to see and and hearing that you enjoy playing it especially with your own spin to it because like you said there's this uh there you are given choices um and not all the choices are going to be apparent or going to be maybe even possibly the right play but you are given the choice to 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 be flexible depending on like what you want to do and what the table is like so i think i just Overall, I think I'm just a big, big fan of this deck. I think it's very cool. Um, but sorry, so, repeat that last sorry. bit again. Oh, I just think it is a very, very cool deck, and uh, I'm, I would like to try and replicate something similar with my own flair to it. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Take your own spin for it. Uh, I, I really love the deck. I think it's a lot of fun. Um, I mean, you can copy and paste this one as you like. Uh, I often suggest that for like my more competitive decks, uh, people should often just take their own flair to those mm -hmm. because when, when, when I'm playing more competitively, I'm taking into account of everything that I know about the game. And I understand that like it, what I know is not going to be the same as other people. Like some people are just not going to get it. And me explaining specific interactions like there's a thousands of interactions i can explain and i'm not going to be able to cover them all uh and i just don't think it's very productive i've i've seen like primers and i just find it that like the interactions that people talk about are just too like uh the way that the way that i describe it is like if you have like a cookbook recipe where someone tells you to add in this many pints of vinegar or whatever or not 
well, pint, I feel like it's too much. <laughs> like, yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, th- this much amount of vinegar, this much amount of salt or whatever, right? And, and, and I'm just like, well, you do realize you could also do these ingredients instead as substitutes, but people aren't going to know. Yeah. Right? They don't know what the vinegar is going to be used for. They don't know what, what it adds to the component of the dish, right? And that's like, you know, my point about sort of my decks is that it's there and some people might be like, oh, I get it. And it's like, but do you really get it, right? There are things that you might not ever realize that you could do to someone. Uh, and, and here's an example that I had uh, at the semifinals of Marchesa. Uh, I played a, I had an Ether Sworn Cannon and Stout. And uh, my opponent across from me, uh, who's going fourth in turn order, has a Survival of the Fittest uh, out in play. And so I played, uh, in my hand is both an Aven Mind Sensor and a Suppression Field. My opponent has three mana up for their Survival of Fittest. If I flash in this Aven Mind Sensor, they will, in response to them, activate Survival. Yeah. Yeah, they will be able to activate it again, right? If I play Suppression Field, it's not going to stop them from activating Survival because they have three mana, right? So I play Suppression Field as my one spell for the turn, or my one non-artifact spell for the turn, because I have Ether Sworn Canis. And then I attack the opponent who's left of the survival player. Um, uh, who is to the left of the survival player. And and the reason why is because, or, or I guess to the right of the survival player, and to my left, actually. So I attack the player who's to the right of the survival player, right? Which is basically the player who comes up before the, the, the player who's playing Survival of the Fittest. And the reason why is because that player is, is at a pretty low life total. And they're not able to block my Sarah Ascendant, my Dranth Magistrate, just basically my army here. And, and they're now forced to play a blocker on their turn. Um, and so when it gets to their turn, uh, they, they don't do this in the actual uh, recording of the game, for those wondering. But the, the, the theory is that if they do play a blocker there during that turn... That is their one non-artifact spell for the turn. Keep in mind, they're the only blue player at the table, right? And so when it gets to the end of their turn, the player with Survival of Fittest is going to activate Survival of Fittest to search their library. They spend all three mana to do this. At this point in time, I then flash in Aven Mind Sensor in response to them. And they can't activate Survival of Fittest again because they don't have another three mana, right? And what's also important is that the blue player cannot counter even Mind Sensor because they played their blocker for the turn. Uh, and that effect, or that gotcha moment, comes from the fact that I had set up my attackers uh, to position the blue player to play their spell early and play, and set up the, su- the suppression field so that the survival player can't respond back to the even Mind Sensor. And this type of play only works because it's a multiplayer format. Otherwise, as soon as I pass my turn, the survival player would have uh, activated their uh, their survival of fittest at the end of my turn, right? But because there's another opponent that they have to go through, they want to activate it at, at the end of their turn so that they don't do anything to their hand on their turn because easily the blue player could have just played a windfall or something. Um. And so, again, none of those stack pieces ever tell you how to play a game of Magic. Oftentimes, the way that I see people play stack pieces is that they windmill slam them into play. They're not necessarily thinking methodically how does it interact across the multiple layers of different turns and the turn order itself and your opponent's game actions. And so utilizing Ether Sworn Cannonist, Suppression Field, Aven Mind Sensor, and your attacks and who you're attacking with can create a very, you know, 
uh, pronounced effect that some people don't even realize. It's it, it's a thing about Commander that has always been appealing to me in a 1v1 format is because of these minor exchanges with other players that I, I, I'm failing to... This is the thing, like, I'm failing... There's something... Uh, I'm trying to think of... It, it's multidimensional, right? That's the thing about multiplayer Commander is that there's no one pure right way to play and you really do have to weigh your pros and cons because there's three usually three other opponents but there could be some like maybe two or maybe three or, or four you know it's 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 variable but the variables are so unknown and so nuanced that it's that type of play where you have to be in the position especially as as the mono white player where you're like i have by setting up this not even like a got like the pure gotcha moment, but like it's it's not just the cards in your hand; it's the attacks and the actions you have in play already that really can influence other people to do things they might not even be actively aware about. Yeah, yeah, it's like playing like a fighting game. If people are familiar with fighting games, is just sequencing your um, your hits in such a way that your opponent is just led into uh, one thing. It's like in some ways it's like a combo. Other ways it's like a flow. It's like a flow chart of things that you're doing because it's not like a true combo where your where your opponent uh, doesn't. Uh, a true combo would be that your opponent doesn't have a frame where they can escape from the combo. Um, but this is more like a flow chart where your opponent does have options, but any option that they take will pivot you to the next thing that you're doing in that flow chart of effects that you do. I mean, it's it's pretty relevant if you're playing like I don't know, something like Super Smash Bros where it, there's less true combos in it compared to like something like Street Fighter and more like, you know, uh soft combos. I might have just said something that for the majority of people in this podcast I, I, I mean, <laughs> I, I have a few people who are fans of Smash Brothers, so there might be some understanding here. And I guess the other yeah. thing, too, I guess maybe just to try and wrap things up, because this episode is, it's it's going longer, and I imagine you, you, you have to mm -hmm. get ready to get going. So, Smash Bros, I think, is, is also a very fantastic analogy for, for Commander, depending on what you want to get out of it. Um... There are some people who love their 1v1 Fox only Final Destination no items like that scenario of of Magic and and Smash Bros. And then there are people who love the let's get eight people on the biggest stage that Smash Ultimate has offer and put all the items on and anyone can play whatever care and everyone hits random or like whatever, right? Like maining Ganondorf. Everyone mains Ganondorf. What the heck? Sure. Why the heck not? You know, everyone's yeah. ability with Ganondorf is different, either because of prior experience or or a complete, complete incomplete knowledge of like maybe not even just fighting games or party games, but just like even just playing a game in general. That is something that can happen. Um, and yet, due to like all these vari potential variables, not just of the players themselves, but also like the game pieces that get spawned in by the game itself, like the the fundamentally weakest player of the group can end up being the winner of the entire match because everyone's trying, you know, everyone's just trying to do their own things, but there's so many random things to calculate. And I, I think Smash Bros. in general is kind of just like a fun 
my personal like fun analogy of like commander across uh, across the spectrum of whatever everyone wants to play because there's just so many so many different ways you can play it you could play it competitively or you could just play it as the fun party game to have when people got drunk and you have eight controllers or whatever you know that 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 that's how i look at it yeah yeah and commander is very uh it's very analog to what commander is i think there's a whole section about the fighting game community that uh people that the commander community can actually take a page out of says the fighting game community has been has existed much longer than the commander community and a lot of the toxicity or community problems or even like the meta the evolution of the metagame um where people talk about tier lists and such is emulated already within the fighting game community mm -hmm. uh and we can actually see that the command that the commander community in even it's like specific uh subdivisions of competitive and non-competitive play uh mirrors that of where the fighting community had gone through and is still going through to this day and um i think that there's a lot that we can learn from the history of another uh of another game's community so that we don't repeat the same problems as is i mean we can do better and you know we should we can take advantage of that and just be better human beings um i mean league of legends uh moba games like overwatch mm -hmm. and such you know uh also emulate similar things i think that you know players sometimes need to realize that what they see isn't necessarily unique to their own gaming experience and they should ask themselves why does this repeat itself you know and that's a very larger philosophical dis uh, discussion that you know obviously we could talk about another day or someone else can address because uh yeah it, it, that one's a bit of a of a doozy uh there is another youtuber that i really recommend if you're really interested in that type of Finding game, card game, intersectionality. His name is Sejam, um, and he does uh, commentary work on fighting games. Mm -hmm. uh, he often talks only about fighting games, but everything that he says oftentimes can be abstracted to card games. Uh, oddly enough, he like a few months back for this fighting game called Guilty Gear, he was talking about uh, the nerfing of a character and explains that Wh like, which which nerf was it. Uh, Soul Bad Guy, if you're familiar with Oh, Gear. he can no longer yeah. unga bunga as, as good as he did? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was talking about the fact that, like, you know, uh, people complaining about losing their matches to Soul Bad Guy. And Sage was like, look, I don't even need to, like, you know, do this specific combo with Soul Bad Guy to beat you. And, and if you lose to him, that's not because it's Soul Bad Guy being broken. It's because, you know, you just didn't know how to play your character and you didn't know how to play against... Soul Bad Guy, you just didn't know the fundamentals. And his point was that, like, yeah, Soul Bad Guy needs should be nerfed. This isn't a defense for him not being nerfed, but it's just more the fact that, like, people like to put or blame their problems on, like, a on... technical aspect, or, like a programming thing, the numbers, yeah. when it's like... But if you already have knowledge of, I, I, I'm not I'm not a video I'm not a fighting game enthusiast. I'm I'm aware of a lot of things. Like I know how Soul was very very. Uh, tough to beat for a combination of reasons and yet it's like but a lot of people if they knew what they were doing were able to at least either keep a soul in check or be able to like overcome the the perceived advantages just th through game knowledge and, yes. and and that can and that type of knowledge isn't just like an innate thing just through observation it's it's through trial and error and playing the game 
over a period of time, whether that be a matter of hours, a matter of days or, or months until you finally get into the position in the headspace of like, oh, I know how to encounter this. And oftentimes a nerf isn't because the, some combo is unbeatable, but it could also just be that the counterplay against that combo isn't a fun counterplay. It's not an interesting dynamic. There, There is a back and forth, but the back and forth is very toxic in terms of what you have to do. Like the soul player never goes off and does his thing and you just bully the soul player to the ground or the uh, soul play, or in order for you to to beat the soul player, you have to cheese a certain like, you know, move set over and over again. And that's not fun for you. May. Right? Yeah. Like, yeah, you use, you use the dolphin over and over and over. Just like, you know, um, just like the donkey video suggests you do. Right. Dolphin. <laughs> um, but, it, but it's exactly that. And I think that like some players don't necessarily realize that they, I mean, oftentimes I see this in commander too, where a player, you know, uh, blames them for winning or losing a game because of a certain card and just be like, well, this is a bad card. And it's like, well, maybe you just never played it correctly, right? And that was like Sejan's point is that like, you know, you losing to Soul, is it really because Soul's broken or maybe it's because, you, you, you know, you just don't know enough, right? And, and, and players don't necessarily perform that type of analysis. This is the type of analysis that some competitive players formulate to themselves. And that, and I will say the good ones tend to do this a lot, right? Uh, before they come to reaching a conclusion of this card sucks or this card is good, um, uh, they like after they, they, they come to an understanding of themselves of like, well, I'm not good at using this card and this card doesn't suck or this card does suck, but I happen to be good at using it. Right. Uh, and, and, and that's like a level of, of awareness or I would say enlightenment that like, you know, not everyone's going to, to, to have, and not everyone should have. I mean, like, I'm also not like a fighting game, like a fighting gamer aficionado. You don't see me at Evo tournaments or anything like that, right? I just play for fun, right? In the same way that you have, you know, really, really good fighting game players like J.M. Croft. I actually, if you guys know J.M. Croft, I actually uh, met him in a game once before and I fangirled all over him because like I watch your YouTube content. I love how you like break down and analyze, you know, Dragon Ball fighters or something like that. Uh, but you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily a skilled fighting gamer myself. I just really enjoy playing fighting games. Mm -hmm. Uh, and also the owner of the, uh, CDH decklist database is a huge fighting game fan as well. We, he and I often nerd out about like things like guilty gear and street fighter as well. Um, but, uh, like, like we're not professional fighting gamers, but we like playing fighting games in the same way. And, and you and you have to be and I think like some competitive players also need to humble themselves with that. Yeah. Like like like, like you're not like like the the people who play commander like you don't like treat them or expect them that they should eventually know these things because like some because like you play Smash Bros and none of the Smash Bros pro players expect you to like know these things, you know? Right. They don't like unless if you actually put in the time and commitment to it, there's just a level of it that's inaccessible. Like that Kaikar Spellcaller Sudden Shock example, I, I see that as a very simple thing. But I also recognize that not a lot of people are going to know about it. Right. This is like the same thing with like Overwatch, where there's like a bear like at least in like the, the first like iteration of Overwatch, like version one, right? The first iteration of it, like people were like the casual or the non competitive players were like 
Bastion is so overpowered, I can't beat Bastion, right? Whereas the competitive players are like, what are you talking about, Bastion, right? Or like, you know, the 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 the, the Roadhog nerf that happened like several years ago back in like the, the, the one where he could clip the, the hook through like objects to like get you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and. <laughs> And some players were like complaining about that, and were like, or and they had to nerf his shotgun damage because you know it was like I think casual. Was, I think it was a pretty much a guaranteed like one or two shot hit. Yeah, yeah, and like the the, the non competitive players didn't know how to play against it, whereas the competitive players were like, you know, this is fine. This is this is actually balanced for us, you know. Uh, and so there's. This is, and again, this is a problem. This is not something that, like, non-competitive players have to, quote-unquote, get good at. And this is just more something that competitive players just kind of have to understand. And this is something that, like, the community as a whole kind of has to work with, with the game designer. Because this is a huge issue for the game designer now. It's like, do I nerf this card, even though it's not actually problematic at the competitive level, but it's a, you know, killjoy factor at the non-competitive level, right? And the demographics needs to understand that, like, are we playing this game as a competitive game or is this game marketed as like a party game like Smash Bros and all the nerfs are designed to optimize fun and not balance competitive play? I mean, because this goes back to like things like the commander ban list uh, and such as well. Right. Uh, when we look at things like standard or modern or legacy, right, these formats are, are designed uh, ban lists there are designed to optimize for, you know, fair, more interesting competitive play. But for Commander, it's optimized for more fun social play, right? Otherwise, we probably wouldn't see, I don't know, like a car like Gaia's Cradle being circulated, given its like price range, inaccessibility, and uh, how powerful it is. Or, like, you know, Dockside is, I think, like, a hotly contested topic right now at the recording of this podcast. There's Gifts Ungiven being considered for unbanning, right? And people need to understand that, like, I feel like, and I had a podcast with this and Sheldon. I know that Sheldon's mm -hmm. talked about this several times now, right? The ban list is never really considered about the matter of power level. Power level is a factor, but it's only no, a factor it's for a, it's, social it, it's play. A, yeah, it's a starting point for social play, especially with untrusted groups or pods that at least everyone's relatively on, like, the same starting point of, like, what is and is not allowed. And, like... There, there, how many like there's been so many gameplay episodes on online uh especially like with commander of like hey let's play with banned cards and like see like what we can do and for some people like it comes to the logical conclusion of oh wait this is why this card is banned yeah you know and, yeah and so we're in, and we're now like you know 2022 and i feel like it's, it's really it's really great hearing you say that Cole because I feel like now there's an like like so many content creators are, and such and hopefully listeners and viewers now can get that in their mind that like when when people are appealing for a card to get unbanned or when they're appealing for a card to be banned right they 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 need to cater their arguments in that particular fashion right because I'm getting kind of tired of hearing people being like, oh, Displacer Kitten is so broken, it needs to be banned. And it's like, look. I'm like, that <laughs> car literally just came out. Relax. Yeah. Well, like, it, it's very powerful, right? What I said yeah. about that cat was that it's the um, Dead Eye Navigator argument. 
Yes. I mean, well, like, in the 1v1 archetype, in the 1v1 scenario, I think this card is very, very powerful. I've heard that, like, legacy players have been testing this, and it seems to be uh, pretty absurd. But again, um, that, that that's from, like, a power level standpoint. When we talk about, like, social play, is it creating a healthy social dynamic, right? Or is this a problem that we need to, like, nix? Like, the whole Breacher ban was because the card was powerful, but it was also because of the fact that, like, the card had very little social restriction, right? Uh, it was easy to cast, unlike Notion Thief, which require you to be in at least two colors for your commander. So Notion Thief didn't see as much of a frequency as Hole Breacher. And then um, Hole Breacher having Flash made it so that, you know, if you were packing it in the middle of a game, it just did something, uh, especially after you wield. And uh, in terms of, like... You know, interesting social interactions. Uh, wheels are often encouraged for more wackier, fun style gameplay. And this card, which discourages wheels, discouraging a wheel is fine. Playing a Spirit of Labyrinth is fine, but it's just more the fact that uh, the the aspect of basically getting all these treasures and then getting a new fresh coat of seven is uh, not not a really fun moment to be had at the table, kind of thing. Like, and, unless the agreement was that like all bets are off, like you said, like. Competitive play, like fantastic, yeah. right? But anyway, like I, I, I've been on the receiving end of a lot of pure lockouts that there, there was either the little to no wiggle room and like the window to interact was like, and it also come like the the argument of like, oh, how much interaction do you have to carry, like in your deck to ensure that like you don't get got right? But there are some people who intentionally aim for those lockouts in even a, a casual game even among strangers because obviously it's a very appealing strategy to them but then it's just a game where they just end up sitting themselves playing their game out and everyone else is incapable of doing anything and i'd rather impact people enough that it slows them down but never outright prevent them from playing the game because like i'd rather have that back and forth of interactivity with other players so then that way that like there there's a sense of accomplishment there's a sense of uh, you know i am being I, i'm peeling ahead but people are still managing to fight back because they're they're still like it's not outright 100 percent competitive but like within our own rules and restrictions and like our deck creations like we're i guess i guess the point i'm trying to get to is like there are people who do play casual commander in bad faith and and withhold information because of the, they are the genuine pub stompers but i don't believe everyone is is like that and i think over time especially online people's people have got have gotten a lot better at communicating what they're capable of doing and the type of game they want and it does lead to more satisfactory games it's just that we need to continue to move forward to if we won't be able to achieve it outright, but to at least like reach a, a state where most people can enter a game in good faith and have a good outcome. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but that being said, I think that is a good place to wrap it up. We're, we're cutting into about, I think two hours of recording and I think it's about 11 o'clock for you now. Yes, it is. Yes. So I think that is a fantastic place to wrap it up. So Charles, thank you uh for for sitting down and chatting with me for for over two hours and and explaining your methodology and your perspective i'm always uh a fan of of listening to what you have to say mm -hmm. 
yeah this was this was a great conversation and uh excellent set of topics that we went through um uh let me know when this comes out i'll, I'll definitely share it with a lot of people because i feel like uh, we went through a lot of good stuff here yeah it's uh it for the record it should be coming out in a couple days so i'll uh, i'll let you know when they get that out cool um and charles where can people find you uh, they can find me on Twitter. Uh, it's uh, I-L-V-A-L-D-I is uh, my tag. Uh, I'm the Mono White Guy uh, on Twitter. Uh, I think it's currently Charles, Mono White Guy. Um, I might get changed to Mono Turismo Guy, considering how how far I've traveled now at this <laughs> point. Um, uh, my, uh, my, my roommate's laughing at me because uh, I... Uh, currently have well you know what i'm not gonna say this for legal reasons but yeah uh i have a speeding ticket <laughs> oh I won't no say, <laughs> i won't say i won't say how fat how fast i was going to get this speeding ticket let's I just say some... let's just say you had initial d going the whole time and we'll just leave it at that uh yeah i was pretty much initial ding a lot <laughs> uh i'm i uh, the other joke is that uh, on this Discord, uh, well, I, I guess I was about to be called the Mono Miata guy. I drive a Miata, uh, and it's it's also white. And there's the there's a joke of me. Wasn't being... there that photo you had on Twitter not that long ago that you took? Yes. That you yes. yeah yeah. <laughs> I am I am the Mono Miata guy, uh, or also the Mono Turismo guy. But at the moment, I am the Mono White guy. So. You can find me there. I do a lot of like tweets and threads. Um, I've been traveling. You do, a you lot. do some one forty twos. Yeah, yeah. Occasionally, <laughs> I'll do like long Twitter threads that that go into my thoughts that could pretty much just be articles. Uh, Callahan from the Mind Sculptors is, constantly tells me we have a website. Just use you, it. You just use it, yeah. and and they're yeah. like, "Come on, please! You don't need to do these one out of forty twos anymore." <laughs> they're, they're, they're they're easier, and I'm a bit of an old fogey because I hate because like posting an article on our website and getting it to work out it's easier to just crop images and then just put them into a character tweet and you know making it look pretty and use different and pres- and presentable and yeah yeah um and so but you know one day I'll, I'll get to doing that and this leads to the other thing where you guys can find me i have my own podcast series called mono white guys with my co-host michael levine uh you know the famous heliot blister and now soon to be the famous rocco player as well doing a lot of good work with uh rocco uh the the naya commander uh and uh we just had a recent episode with uh phil gallagher who's an old college buddy of mine who runs thraben U. uh very you know pretty famous death and taxes player as well uh i'm on playing with power um and i record games with them as a patron um for them and uh you'll often see videos of playing with power and you know me the mono white guy playing games with them which is usually like some you know new or different mono white deck showcasing something interesting they can do with mono white at a semi-competitive level um and yeah i mean those are those are the main channels the mind sculptor is playing with power and then there's my twitter um as well and if you're in the dc area you can find me at dice city games uh i, I usually frequent the store uh as well as well as dream wizards um that's you know near my usual stomping grounds or pretty much anywhere in mostly the maryland area sometimes i'm down in virginia at the curio cavern uh i'm just a wandering wayfarer or weathered wayfarer is what they say right or a far traveler 
I, I still, yeah, that's pretty accurate. Zero, you've you've been all over. You've seen it all. Yes, I have actually. Um, it was a funny story where I was in Colorado on a business trip, and I just walked into an LGS, and some kid was asking me for trades. And I told him that I don't have anything that he's looking for because I only pack white cards and he wasn't looking for white cards. And he was like, oh, I feel like, you know, the color never works well at all. And then he plays a game with me and he's or he, he sees me play a game and he sees me winning and he's like, wow, like I've never seen anyone be successful playing mono white except for this guy called the mono white guy on YouTube. Right. <laughs> he's flying under like, the radar. <laughs> <laughs> Do you yeah, not know who I, was... I am? <laughs> oh, well, I was like, oh, really? Tell me more about him. <laughs> oh, my God. That is yeah. fantastic. Someday, someday, someone will look at you and be like, oh, yeah, that's the mono white guy. <laughs> yeah, well, I kind of like the, the and invisible. The anonymity. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. be like, uh, I'm just a guy. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Just a guy who plays mono white. Maybe the mono white guy, but I'm just a guy. <laughs> Don't. I mean, well, it. Yeah, and, and and that was like a, a point that I, I told uh, Lenny from EDH Rec about. Um, Le- Lenny Willie. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, we, yeah. We, we, yeah, we play D and D together uh, actually, uh, and uh, I, I'm in a Theros campaign uh, with him uh, at, at right now, where I'm playing a paladin of all character types. <laughs> what? That's crazy! Uh, Can't believe it. Yeah, I mean, I also play other card games like Legends of Runeterra and Hearthstone, and I play. I have like three thousand or close to four thousand wins under my belt playing Paladin. That's like the one class I play in Hearthstone, um, and I have like almost all the Demacia cards in Legends of Runeterra as well. And I like almost exclusively back when they had like the drafts uh, in Legends of Runeterra, like play um, uh, Demacia as well, like just force Demacia. Um, so, so you clearly um, you clearly have an archetype i clearly do have an archetype i like i have a style of playing that i enjoy playing and i've played a tons of different styles before like like if you see me playing a storm deck i typically know how to play a storm deck it's just that like i don't really like playing it i'm pretty rusty with it now but it's not like i don't know how it works um like i i know how to play the the anti-strategy against it it's just that like in my younger years, um, and I told people this, like I used to be the mono red guy and I, I loved, you know, just going off off the walls with storm combos and stuff like that and, and stack manipulation. I built a mono red deck that like, you know, comboed off with like a mono red version of Omniscience Enter the Infinite and all. Um but uh yeah, like I don't I don't know. Uh it, 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 that, that that's just not me anymore <laughs> i i either just gotten old and 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 moved on it's like obi-wan kenobi you know he was more fast and nimble in his in his in, in, in his, his younger youth. years <laughs> yeah in his youth and now he's like this crotchety old man being like master quagon where are you <laughs> right <clears throat> it's minor spoilers for the show <laughs> yeah but... i mean well like yeah yeah i mean he was supposed to see master quagon we don't know if he sees master quagon or not we don't know. Right. I don't know. I don't know yet. I haven't finished watching the show yet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it was at the end of Revenge of the Sith that he's supposed to find Qui-Gon Jinn, and people are expecting him, Qui-Gon, to show up in um, the Obi-Wan Kenobi miniseries. So, yeah. But, yeah. Um, uh, again, Charles, thanks for coming on and, and 
uh, I think you've also displaced uh, the longest episode uh, for for Nathan's episode, which was like two hours long because we we're talking about Darko. So congratulations! Oh wow! <laughs> wow! Yeah. Well, you know, there's there, there's a lot to go through, but I think uh, everything is uh, ties itself in well together for for this one. Uh, and I'm not just talking about Dargo <laughs> all the time. I, I love you, Nathan. <laughs> um, there's there's a lot to go through, uh, but I think it's all good. And I agree. So that's it for this very long episode. Thanks to anyone who has managed to listen through all of this, and we'll talk to you on the next one.